We are continuing uh, this morning uh, a series of sermons that we've been doing looking at the parables of Jesus, the stories that Jesus told, not just so that we can learn more about some quaint and antiquated stories, but so that we can gain a truer picture of who Jesus is and what he offers us in life with him. We want to get to know the real Jesus and what real life with him is like in his world. And so this morning, uh, we are in Luke chapter 14. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either to the, for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's word given to... <laughs> This is God's word is absolutely true and given to us in love. When we meet the real Jesus, uh, when we meet Jesus as he really is, he both offers us more than we can ever imagine and asks from us more than we can imagine ever giving. It's an incredible offer, an incredible demand. From Jesus. Christian Smith is a sociologist, uh, formerly at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, now at Notre Dame. And he conducted, along with a team of sociologists, the largest study uh, done over multiple years of religious faith in America, uh, from teenagers through adults, seeking to understand not how do Americans identify, not what do we say we believe, not do we say, I'm Catholic, I'm Protestant. I'm evangelical, I'm orthodox, not how we identify, but how the actual outworkings of the doctrines and beliefs that we hold, what Americans really believe. And what he found, what he and his team found, was that across traditions, whether you identify as Protestant or Catholic, liberal or conservative, across regions of the country, whether you live in Alabama or California, and across age groups, that what most Christians believe in America, 
and what actually most people believe in America, even those who identify as having no affiliation with organized religion. He identified as the belief system that he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Those are some big words. What do they mean? Deism is a philosophical belief that there's, there's a God out there, but you can't really know him. You can't know that much about him. And he's not all that interested in working in our world. He's not active in the world. So he made the world, he's up there, but we should really be primarily concerned uh, with the material things of this world where we can control. That's deism. Moralistic. This God up there basically wants us to be good people. God wants us to be good people, and he rewards good people. Therapeutic. God's greatest desire for our lives is that we be happy, that we have healthy self-esteem, that we think well of ourselves. And so Smith identifies this as moralistic, therapeutic deism. And what he notices is that even in traditional churches, even in churches, uh, Presbyterian churches, uh, even in evangelical churches, in all kinds of churches, uh, that this belief has started to colonize the places that identify even as Christians, even as Christianity. And so that many people grow up, especially in the South, right, where there are, there's a church on every corner and four churches on some corners, right, where, where you, you grow up and Christianity is just kind of in the water. It's kind of everywhere. It's what you, you, you expect to say a prayer before your football game, right? It's a part of the cultural accepted, culturally accepted way of life. But what many of us are confronted with isn't Christianity. It's not this Jesus who both offers us more than we can imagine and demands of us more than we can bear the thought of giving. But this kind of bland, do good, be happy, God's out there somewhere kind of faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the German theologian who lived during the, the rise of Nazi Germany, uh, called it this. He referred to this kind of bland religion that he noticed in his culturally Christian state of Germany. He called it cheap grace. Here's what he wrote. He said, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. He goes on to say, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And what he saw was that this kind of bland Christianity, cheap grace, led to a church that when confronted with true evil, right, evil incarnate in the face of, of Nazism, was left without the resources of self-denial, the resources of conviction, to stand in the face of evil and say no, even if it costs our lives, no. And so that's what Jesus uh, is talking about in these two short parables and this little bit of teaching here in Luke 14. And so we're going to look uh, at the cost of discipleship, the cost of non-discipleship, then the fruit in our lives and in our society. Uh, when we choose the way of costly discipleship to Jesus. First, the cost of discipleship. Jesus turns in verse 25 to speak to the crowd uh, that's around him. 
This is a group of would-be disciples. This is a group of people who've come to Jesus seeking to understand who he is and what he offers and what it means to follow him. People not unlike us, right? People who come to Jesus uh, seeking to understand more about him. And Jesus, presented with this group of interested recruits, of people who are interested in joining his community, joining his way, instead of doing what we often do and, and, and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, come on, come on, it's, it's not that big a deal. It won't affect you that much. You should, yeah, come along. We'll figure it out along the way. He says, no. If anyone is going to be my disciple, if anyone wants to follow me, he should count the cost. He should know on the front end uh, what he's getting into. Jesus isn't uh, somebody trying to sell you a timeshare, right? He says, hey, come along for a vacation. No, there's a little presentation at the end, but you won't mind it. And then they, they hook you in at the end with the sales pitch, right? No, Jesus isn't, isn't trying to sell you on something. He's upfront with it on the front end. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it's like to live with me. And he says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, uh, what he says here is hard to hear, right? That if you don't hate your family, those closest human relationships, you, you can't be my disciple. Now, we know that he doesn't mean that you have to literally hate your family. Right? Other places, Jesus commands us and God commands us to love our father and mother, to love our children. Matthew, in his gospel account, actually helps us to understand it a little bit clearer. In Matthew's account, he takes this Semitic, that, this ancient Near Eastern kind of turn of phrase about hatred, and he translates it in a way that's a little more understandable. He says, if you don't love me more than you love your mother and your father, your brothers and your sisters and your children, then you can't be my disciples. It's about Jesus uh, being the first love of our hearts. It's about Jesus being the one that we love above all else. You know, I've quoted him before, but Augustine, one of the church's great early thinkers, says this. He says, what's basically wrong with humanity and sin is that we love the wrong things too much. That we love ourselves above all that we love these good things that God's given us, we elevate them and we believe that they're going to give us salvation, that they're going to give us life. So we start to believe that if my kids are successful, if I have a happy family, if my relationship with my parents is great, then I'm a good person and I have a worthwhile life. And Jesus says, no, compared to your love for me, all of these other loves need to be relative. They need to come under your love for me. Augustine summarized the whole of the Christian life this way, and I love this. He says, love God and then do what you want. Love God and then do whatever you want. And what's he saying? Is he lowering the bar and saying, well, if you just love God, go to church on Sundays, and then do whatever else. No, he's saying that when you love God, when you give God the, the prime place in your heart, when he's your main desire, your main affection, then all of the rest of your loves, all of the rest of your desires start to come into right ordering. You start to be able to handle your money, uh, not greedily, not as something to be hoarded to give you life, but as something to be treated loosely and given away freely. You start to treat your, your relationships not as a way to fill up your internal emptiness, 
but as a way to love sacrificially as Jesus loves your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and your children. That when Christ has the prime place, when he's your orienting desire, your other desires fall in under him. That's what Jesus is after in your life. Jesus isn't after being the answer for the religious part of your life. He's not after, you know, we, I think we in America are great at, well, we've got our work life, and then we've got our family life, and then we try to exercise because that's important. And yeah, you should have a spiritual component to your life, right? You should, you should try to pray. You should read what Oprah tells you to. Um, you, should, uh, you should try to give away a little bit of money every once in a while. Yeah, spirituality is important, and Jesus is one option for your spiritual compartment. And Jesus says, no, I want to be the center-orienting desire of your whole life. When you ask what your job is and how to go about your vocation, I want you to come to me to ask. When you ask about your relational life, who should I date, who should I marry, how should I parent, I want, you, I want, I want to be the one you come to and ask. I want to be the center of your life, not the periphery. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about this, great Baptist preacher of the last century. He says, when Christ is precious to you, you know that Christ is your first thing when everything else is expendable. Your money isn't precious to you anymore. Your possessions aren't precious to you anymore. These things no longer have a hold on your heart. They no longer have a hold on you. And so Jesus says that, yes, you even have to hate your own life. You have to orient around your, your pride and your concern primarily for yourself. Unless you're willing to die, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. You know, this is, when we hear take up your cross, if you can't bear the cross, you can't be my disciple. We, we're used to worshiping in churches with crosses. We're used to crosses uh, as a religious symbol. But imagine someone who's inviting you to come and let them be your teacher, saying, until you join me on death row, you have no part in me. Until you're willing to drag your own electric chair behind you, you can't follow me. And that's what the cross was. It was a symbol of capital punishment. It was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of defeat. And Jesus says, unless there's this part of you that's willing to die, unless you're willing to die to your own life, you cannot follow me. And then he uses this great little parable. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Count the cost before you enter into this life with Jesus, because the cost of discipleship is steep. It's going to cost you what feels like death, what feels like dying to your desires and your wants. Count the cost. You know, as though to uh, help physically illustrate this parable. If you've ever driven uh, from here to Orlando, you go through Daytona, you get on I-4, and then just outside of Orlando, when you come to, I don't know, it's just maybe inside of Lake Mary before you get to Altamont, um, as, though, as though they wanted to help us with this parable, there is a building uh, that has stood about half complete <laughs> for as long as I've been driving. Uh, I mean, I, I moved to Orlando um, oh, man, it was 10 years ago, maybe, 
and it was half built. We moved out of Orlando about five years ago. It was half built. We drive down to Orlando periodically, and you know what they did cleverly to save face a little bit? is they built, they built in the rest of the windows. So it kind of looks, if you don't look hard enough, it looks finished, um, right? And everybody that drives by thinks to themselves, man, they, there was some faulty financial planning that went on in building this building. Uh, these people uh, planned something in boom times that were, they were not prepared uh, for finishing it. And Jesus is saying, don't let your life be like that building. Don't be somebody who gets a halfway in to the life of discipleship. And then says, oh, I didn't know it was going to be hard. I didn't know you wanted that part of my life. I didn't know you wanted that part of my heart. Count the cost. So that's the cost of discipleship. But what Jesus tells us is that, yes, discipleship has a cost. But non-discipleship has a much higher cost. Right? There's a, that we as human beings are caught between a rock and a hard place. That yes, the cost of entering into life with Jesus and following Jesus feels like death. But staying where we are, not changing, not embracing the call to follow Jesus, has a far higher cost than the cost of entering into life with him. We miss out not only on eternal life, not only on eternal life forever with God, but in this life we miss out on joy we miss out on fulfillment. We miss out on purpose. We miss out on what we were actually created for, life with God. And so he goes on to tell another parable, not just about a man in a tower, but about a king deciding whether or not to go into battle. He says, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So here, here's the metaphor. If you're the king of a country and you're about to enter into a war, if you're about to make an enemy for yourself, a smart king takes an inventory. He looks at his own army and he looks at the warring king's army. And if he thinks he has a chance, maybe he goes into war. But if he realizes that he's grossly outnumbered, he seeks peace. He seeks reconciliation. He seeks to prevent the loss of life that would go on. This is the, the reason that if you ever read the headlines and see like the press releases out of North Korea, right, or the press releases out of Venezuela, where it's like, we declare war on the great America. We're, we're, you know, we're going to get them. And you go, really? That's, you want to do that, right? I mean, we, this, the most powerful military in the world, you want to try to pick a war. And so usually they thankfully back off, right? But it's foolish with a small army, it's foolish with small resources to go up against someone with great resources. And the scriptures tell us that in our sin, that's exactly what we've done. That in our sin, when Adam in the garden chose the apple, when he chose disobedience from God, when we choose rebellion against the cosmic king of all the universe, that we actually make an enemy out of God. Paul himself tells us uh, that we are enemies of God in sin. And it's not because God wants to be enemies with us. It's not because God made us in order to be his enemies. It's because in our sin, every time we sin, every sin of our lives is a slap in the face to the king of the universe, the commander of angel armies, the, the owner of heaven, 
that when we sin, we pick a fight with the all-powerful, omnipotent God. And so the only wise thing to do is to seek peace. The only wise thing to do is to seek forgiveness, to seek reconciliation. And the good news, the good news is that God, the one who's in the stronger position, the one with the powerful force, doesn't wait for us to make reconciliation to him. But he actually takes upon himself the cost of our reconciliation. He actually comes towards us in peace, comes towards us in love. Paul says, you know, in this life, sometimes, sometimes somebody will die for a friend. Right? And we exalt that as the highest of heroism. When somebody lays down their life for a friend. But God showed his love for us in this. That while we were still enemies, while we were still slapping him in the face, while we were still insulting him and running the other way, he made a way for us through Jesus, through giving his very own son. He died for his enemies. He died for his enemies. And this uh, is the life that's on offer to us. This is what God offers us. You know, in the parables uh, that we've looked at so far, We've seen some great stories. And there's two themes that have run through all of these parables, if you notice. One is these incredibly rich pictures of grace. Right last week, this great banquet, right, this incredible feast that's made available for the outcasts and the crippled, for those whose society's forgotten to come in and to feast with God. He tells that story. He tells another story that life with God is like these two debtors, remember, who've been who've gotten into a debt over their head that they cannot pay, and God's grace is like a forgiveness. It's like someone wiping away all of your debt. Another story is that his, his grace comes to us like a seed that has this power to burst out into new life. Incredible metaphors of grace. But there's another theme that runs through the stories, if you notice, which is people who, because their hands are too full of other stuff, are unable to receive this grace, are unable to receive this kingdom. Right, in the story of the seed and the sower, it was the seed that falls into the soil and then gets choked out by other plants, which, which Jesus tells us are the concerns of this world. Right, in the, um, in the story of the great banquet, it's those who receive their invitation and say, oh, I can't make it. I've just acquired a field. I've just acquired oxen. I've just acquired a wife. I can't make it to the party. It's the rich man who's so busy building bigger barns to hold his stuff that he can't engage with God. Jesus seems to have a point <laughs> that he's after in these stories, which is that God's grace is deep and it's immense and it's bountiful and it's beyond your wildest dreams. And the thing that keeps most of us from receiving it is our attachments to lesser things. It's our attachment to our lesser loves, to our stuff, to our relationships, to our own well-laid plans to make our own lives work. And until you let go of them, that if your fists are clenched around your stuff, uh, they can't open uh, to receive God's grace. They can't open to receive what he has for you. And so that's the dilemma that we find ourselves in, friends, is we're stuck with a life in Christ that does require a death, that it does require a laying down of our lives, a laying down of our desires, 
to receive it or to stay stuck in our own ways, to stay stuck in our own sin and deal with certain death. You know, you may have seen the story. Um, there was a movie that came out a little while ago called 127 Hours. It was the real-life story of a man named Aaron Ralston. He's one of these crazy people uh, who goes canyoning. So he goes uh, and just goes hiking in desolate places out west uh, on his own. And Ralston foolishly went out into the middle of the desert, and his phone died. He had no way of getting in touch. Nobody knew where he was. And so he was going through a canyon, and a rock fell down and pinned his arm against the wall of the canyon. He struggled for a while before realizing that he was stuck, before realizing there is no getting out of this. My, my arm is stuck. The rock's too heavy. He hung on 127 hours as the, the length of time that he spent in that canyon pinned to that wall. And he started to realize, uh, my food is running out. My water's run out. I have two options. I'm going to sit here and die, slowly. Or I've got a pocket knife, a small Swiss Army knife in my bag. And he cut his own arm off. I think I might have died. I don't know that I could have done that. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know that I could have pulled that off. But where he was was in a place where he was facing certain death if he did nothing, if he stayed the same. A pain that would feel like death, but offer out the hope of life. And that's what he chose. And that's where we are in our sin. We can choose to stay where we are in certain death. Or we can feel something that risks death, that feels like death, that cuts us to the core. And receive deep and lasting and everlasting life. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said that real courage, real faithfulness, always involves this willingness to die. He says a soldier surrounded by enemies, if he's to cut his way out, needs to combine strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he'll be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then that will be suicide and he will not escape. Listen, he must seek his life in a spirit of, in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water, and yet drink death like wine. He must desire life like water, and yet drink death like wine. What a beautiful line. That's why he's G.K. Chesterton and I'm not. <laughs> the Christianity involves this willingness to reach out, to receive life while embracing a death, a death to ourselves, to count the cost, to follow Jesus, to receive what he offers. And then Jesus goes in to describe the fruit of this life. He says uh, in so many words that the whole world is waiting for men and women who answer this call to discipleship. That what the world most desperately needs, what the world desperately needs is men and women who die to themselves, who, who leave their pride, who leave their way of life to follow Jesus and his way of life-giving love. Right In a world gone mad with sin, with lust, with anger, with violence, it's people who follow in the way of Jesus, who take up their cross, who are the hope of the world, who have the power to change the world. Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Right? What good is salt if it's not salty? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, Matthew tells us uh, that we are the salt of the world. 
Jesus tells us in Matthew, that the church is to be the salt of the world and the light of the world. Salt is something that gives flavor. It's something that preserves. It's something that when it's worked into the world, when it's worked into the food that you put it in, pervades the whole thing. And that's the way that Jesus designs his church to work, that distinctive taste of discipleship, of people who hold their own lives loosely in order to glorify God and love their neighbors. That when that bit, no matter how small it is, right, you can take a little bit of, a, of salt or what looks like a little bit of salt and have an incredible influence on a large amount, right? So there's no need for Christians to feel like, oh, we're so few. Well, the vast majority of the world is walking on in unbelief. They're embracing, you know, moralistic therapeutic deism at best. And we're so small and we're so weak. And the world's gone mad with its own sin. What, are, how, what difference can we make as a minority? And yet, the church has always been a minority. The church has always been a tiny bit of salt worked in. We're bent not on domination, not on subjecting the world to us, but on working our way in and permeating the flavors of our city. Philip Yancey, Christian writer, tells a story about his interaction with a Muslim man. The Muslim has this great insight. He says, you know, I've read the entire Koran, and I can find no guidance in it for how Muslims should live in a as a minority in society. Right? There's no guidance for how a Muslim lives as a minority. They can only be, be set on taking over, on living as a majority. And yet I've read the entire New Testament many times, and I can find in it no guidance on how Christians should live as a majority that every bit of Paul's instructions for the church, every bit of what we see of the church in action and acts, is them going into places of ridicule, places of sacrifice, sometimes places of certain death, in order to love their neighbors and lay down their lives to take up their cross, and eventually to begin to spring out in transformation. That's what salt does. So we need not fear the world. We need not fear our neighbors. We need not, need not fear our schools, not fear uh, the societal ills that plague us. Right? Nobody, when you're about to put some steak, uh, about to put some salt on a steak, says, oh, no, don't, don't put too much. You're going to make the salt taste steaky. <laughs> no, you think to yourself, oh, no, you're going to make the, the steak too salty. Right? That a little bit has an incredible transformative power, has an incredible power. And that is Jesus' plan to save the world. We talked a little while ago about the, the old missionaries who, when they left Europe, would pack their possessions in a coffin and set out for Africa, set out for Polynesia, knowing that going there meant their certain death. Jesus says, if you won't take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. We should imagine that when we pack our briefcases to go to work, that we're packing our coffins going to lay down our lives for our co-workers and our callings. When we head across the street to a party for our neighbors, we should imagine that we're packing our stuff in a coffin, going to lay down our lives for our neighbors. When we turn our, our attention towards our marriages, we should live as those who've already made a decision to die to ourselves, as those who've already committed to die to our own way of life, die to our own agenda, die to our own pride and we drag into that argument with your spouse, your own coffin, those who approach our children in the same way, knowing that we have so little to lose because we've already embraced the call to receive everything by giving up everything.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm the preacher and I'm not sure I like this. Um, I love the idea of receiving a kingdom beyond my imagination. I love the idea of grace like a banquet, of forgiven debts. And yet, Lord, the thought of relinquishing those attachments that my soul clings to, the pride, the self-centeredness that I know lurks in my heart, it's terrifying, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you would pry our fingers loose, that you would break the white-knuckled grip that our souls use as they cling to money, as they cling to our reputations, as they cling to our agendas and our will and our ways, that you would help us to let go so that with open hands we can receive a kingdom that offers us far more more wealth than this world could ever offer, more love than the best of our relationships can can give us. Lord, I pray that counting the cost, that we would follow you, that we would embrace your way of life as our way of life, your way of self-giving love as our way in our city, in our place. And therefore, Lord, that you would glorify yourself and cause our neighborhoods and our city to flourish as we work our way into into all of the places where you've called us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.